Welcome to Southside Community Church. Enjoy our Sunday morning message. If you remember back to the first Sunday in March, we started a series called Jesus Invites Us into a Life of Personal Ministry. And the reason why we're talking about personal ministry is because of this document right here. This is the heart and soul of Southside document. If you never got a copy of this, uh, it's available out there at the welcome desk. You can grab it after service. Um, At the very top, it says gospel plus safety plus time. We want that to be the atmosphere of our church. Plenty of gospel, plenty of safety, plenty of time for you to grow into the person God is creating you to be. And we got that from the Ray Ortland, and there's a little article at the bottom about that. But then right underneath there, it says, key emphasis, equipping everyone for personal ministry. And the reason why we believe personal ministry is important is because the way to become more impactful as a church is to get more people involved in personal ministry. It will increase our reach It will increase the depth of our ministry. It will increase the variety of our ministry because it's not just one voice or two voices or three voices speaking and leading. The church is meant to be what Tim Keller calls um, powered by a movement dynamic. That means that not everything is controlled from the top down. Movement dynamic means that everybody is involved and takes ownership of shaping the culture of Southside, and that happens through personal ministry. So if you didn't get your sermon notes today and you'd like to grab those, those are um, at the welcome desk. It's okay if you go get them right now. If you already have them, you can follow along. And I want to give you in those notes, what what is personal ministry? Let's talk about the definition of personal ministry. What do I mean by personal ministry? Tony Payne, I think, gives the best definition that I've read. Uh, he, wrote, he helped co-write a book called The Vine Project, which is something that Pastor Al and I are, 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 were reading through together as a way of equipping us to know how to best lead us as a church. But he gives this definition. Tony gives this definition of personal ministry in your notes. Personal ministry involves forming a loving relationship with another individual with the aim of mutual growth in Christian understanding, obedience, and service of others. I'll read that again. Personal ministry involves forming a loving relationship with another individual with the aim of mutual growth in Christian understanding, obedience, and service of others. So it's mutual growth. Not merely by downloading information into another person's brain, but by way of a loving relationship with another person. Ministry is relational. That's the way that Jesus exercised ministry. It's the way that Paul exercised ministry. And we started this three-week series, and our first series on Luke 5, 1 through 11 was called Jesus Pursues the Disinterested. And if you didn't listen to that, you can go back on, uh, and listen on our podcast. You can just search Southside Worcester at your Apple podcast provider, Spotify, or you can go to southsideworcester.com and, and listen to any of those messages. It was the first 
uh, Sunday in March. So we started by looking at the fact that Peter, even though he seemed dis- disinterested, and even though he seemed like he knew there were other things or he believed there were other things more important than ministry, Jesus still pursued him. So it doesn't matter what interest level we start with. God is still going to pursue us for this life of meaning and fulfillment by living for personal ministry. If you have your Bibles or your sermon notes, you can follow with me along. I'm going to read Luke 5, 1 through 11. On one occasion, while the crowd was pressing in on him to hear the word of God, he was standing by the lake of Gennesaret, and he saw two boats by the lake, but the fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets. Getting into one of the boats, which was Simon's, he asked him to put out a little from the land. Jesus wanted to create a little space. The acoustics were such a way that if you went out a little bit from the land onto the water, uh, people could hear you better and you had a little bit more space from the crowd. And he sat down and taught the people from the boat. And when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into the deep and and let down your nets for a catch. And Simon answered, Master, we toiled all night and took nothing. But at your word, I will let down the nets. And when they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish, and their nets were breaking. They signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled both of their boats. So that they began to sink. And when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish they had taken. And so also were James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, Do not be afraid. From now on, you will be catching men. And when they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. Next week, we're going to focus on Peter and Jesus' response. This week, I want to focus on the supernatural catch of fish and what we can learn from that. So what happens is Jesus gets into this boat with Simon Peter. He goes out a little bit from the shoreline. He teaches, and when he's done teaching, he says to Simon, go out a little bit deeper and let your nets down. And Simon's like, yeah, we've, we fished all night, and all we got is a bunch of scrap that we're having to clean off the nets. And we just finished cleaning the nets. And you want us to go out and put the net into the water again. And it's better to catch fish in this sea before the sunrise. And the sun's out. So everything's working against you. But you want me to go out and put the nets down? Fine, we'll go out and put the nets down. Because Peter probably thought the same thing about Jesus that a lot of us tend to think. And that is that, Jesus, you're really good at the spiritual stuff. That's your lane. Like You're really good at the religious stuff aspect of life and we'll, we'll learn from you there. You can teach us there. That's what we feel good about you speaking about. But when it comes to like real life stuff, um, probably better to let us handle that. Peter didn't believe that Jesus was actually a better fisherman than him. 
Do you know that Jesus knows how to be a better teacher than anyone else? Do you know that Jesus knows how to be a better salesperson than anyone else? Do you know that Jesus knows how to run a company better than anyone else? We have this, we have this weird belief sometimes that Jesus is good for the spiritual stuff of life, but he actually probably is too naive to handle the stuff that we deal with in life. That he probably can't actually provide for us the way that we can provide for ourselves. Jesus is the most brilliant human being who ever lived. And he knew how to get things done. And he knew how to provide for himself and others. And what we see in this fishing invitation is before calling Peter into a life of ministry, Jesus demonstrates to him, I know how to take care of you. I know how to take care of your needs. I know how to provide food. I can supernaturally care for you as you prioritize the things that I call you into. Even when it comes to vocation, even when it comes to practical provision, now, this, is a, this is an interesting lesson that I started thinking about years ago when I was at a men's retreat at Beulah Beach. I used to go to this retreat every year, and they would bring in these fascinating Bible teachers from all over the country, exquisite Bible teachers, interesting Bible teachers. And one of the things that we did every year is every guy would stand up. We'd go around the room, and every guy would stand up, and, and we would tell, you know, what's our name, and we would tell everyone what we did for a living, which guys love to do this. So we would go around the room, and it got to one guy, and he stood up and he said, uh, my name's such and such, and, and I, work at, I work at a gas station. That's awesome. Doesn't look like a guy that works at a gas station. That's, that's amazing, and there's great dignity in that. There's great work, and work ethic in that. That's a beautiful thing, but I just, I don't know. It just, it seems like it doesn't, it doesn't align, but cool. So the more that, the more time we spent together with this group of men that week, and the more people were talking about this guy. And apparently he kind of helped fund the retreat. Apparently he kind of helped fund the transportation to bring some of the teachers in from the West Coast. Apparently he helped kind of fund some pretty significant and big ministries in the United States. Apparently he was friends with some of these people who were kind of kingdom builders on a large scale. And it just, I, I was just like, I remember one lunch I asked, I asked one of the guys I was eating with that knew him, I said, he, he, so he works at a gas station. That's, that's just so interesting. And he said, well, he does, but he also like owns 30 of them. <laughs> and part of this guy's testimony, I mean, he actually still worked behind the cash register. And part of this guy's testimony is he started in that business. He started that way. And one day he handed it over to God. And one day he said, I'm going to give you everything, even my, even my responsibilities at this gas station. And I'm just going to see what you can do with it. And God multiplied it. And this guy's life focus was on making disciples and making it possible for other people to make disciples. And God blew his business up. It's not a guarantee that he'll operate that way every time, but in some way, your life will become more generative when you surrender everything you have to him. Jesus condescended to Peter. He got down on his level. He said, you're a fisherman. You want, to see, what, you want me to give you a, some fish? All right, go out a little bit deeper into the water, and you will have so much fish, your boat will sink. You'll have so much fish, your partner's boat will sink. 
Now, there's an interesting spiritual principle here that we really ought to pay attention to, and that is because God is a God of abundance, and a lot of us have this mentality that God is a God of scarcity. He's not. He's a God of abundance. He made everything. He owns everything. Psalms say if he needs something, he's not going to ask us for it. He owns everything. So because of that, when God blesses something, it multiplies. There's a fine line here. A very fine line here. And this is where we have to be very careful because there is a very unbiblical aspect of this teaching that goes into the unbiblical waters of prosperity gospel, health and wealth mentality. It is dangerous. I would say it's actually demonic because it's a counter offer of what God actually offers. It's wanting to be... um, it's, it's, it's wanting provision for the sake of the provision instead of wanting God and him giving you provision as he sees fit. So we have to be careful about that. And at the same time, when God blesses something, it multiplies in some way. And that's what got Peter's attention. Now, right now, you should be saying to yourself, I need to see that in scripture. And I'm glad you're saying that to yourself. So I'm going to show you. I'm going to blast you with some passages here, and I'm going to let Scripture speak for itself. Because when we get into an area that's often mistaught, when we get into an area that's often misunderstood, the more easy it is to misunderstand it, the more Scripture we ought to use to prove it. We're going to start in Genesis. Again, this is in the teaching notes. If you don't have those, you can grab those even after service. Genesis 1, verse 28. A very important verse in the Bible. God created humans, and here's what he did. And God blessed them. What happens when God blesses something? It multiplies in some fashion. God blessed them, and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply. So he blessed them. He gave them increased capacity and then told them, now you go multiply. I'm giving you the capacity because I'm blessing you. You now are able to take the raw material of creation and multiply and cover the earth with it. You're able to multiply yourselves. You're able to multiply humanity. But only after God blessed them. The blessing first and then the capacity to multiply. Let's look at Malachi, the last book in the Old Testament. The Israelites had been robbing God of the tithe. And a tithe is um, a system of finances where God um, told the Israelites, give me a tenth, not like the last tenth, but your best tenth, the tenth off the top. And if you do that, you give me, you return to me a tenth of what you have. I will bless you. I will provide everything you need. It's It's a way to exercise their faith, their dependence, their surrender, their trust. Uh, Bill Dogram says, in tithing, God is not asking us for 10%. He's giving us 90% of what is already 100% his. And so God's saying, trust me to give me this, and I will multiply. I will bless your life. This is, that's the backdrop of this Malachi 3, 7 through 12. And I'm going to read the whole thing. There's gonna be, there's, I'm going to do a lot of Bible reading today, today. And I want you just to sit with these passages Malachi 3, 7 through 12. From the days of our father, your fathers, this is God speaking to the Israelites. From the days of your fathers, you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Return to me, 
and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, how shall we return? Will man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? In your tithes and contributions. You are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house, and thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts. If I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. Sounds like God is saying that he will multiply, bless, and pour down generously everything that they need. It says, I will rebuke the devourer for you so that it will not destroy the fruits of your soil and your vine in the field shall not fail to bear, says the Lord of hosts. Then all nations will call you blessed for you will be a land of delight, says the Lord of hosts. This is what struck Peter. God is saying, take that step of faith. Go out a little deeper into the water. Put the nets down. Take the step of faith. Do what I say, and I will prove my generosity. I will bless you in real ways that you'll feel. Proverbs eleven twenty four and 25. Again, in your notes, this is a... I've memorized this a while ago, and it's, it's been a great encouragement to me. One gives freely, yet grows all the richer. Another withholds what he should give. And only suffers one, whoever brings blessing will be enriched, and one who waters will himself be watered. It's the idea that God will multiply back to you what you give. It's the idea that God will bless you when you walk in obedience to him. You can't outgive God. Uh, there's a great commentary that talks about those two verses. It's Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown. This is a, John, this is a, this is a good commentary. It's a commentary that a man named John Piper uses when he puts this, it's one of the regulars that he goes to. And in this commentary, um, they say, liberality, by God's blessing, secures increase. In other words, when you give a lot, the way that God works, when you do it in his name and for him, he provides some type of increase, not always financially, but he does provide some type of increase while penuriousness instead of expected gain procures poverty. Yeah, I don't know what it means either. So I had to look it up. Penuriousness is a, is a weird word, but it means the quality or practice of being overly sparing with money. I'm like, why can't you just say that? <laughs> to be generous with God's help and God's provision means he will bless you back. You can't outgive him. That's what they're saying in Proverbs 24 and 25. And to be a Scrooge means you'll always be wanting more. You'll never have enough. This is important because Jesus is demonstrating to Peter, don't worry about your provision. I created this world. Do what I tell you to do. Focus on me. Focus on my kingdom. Focus on obeying what I say to do, even when it doesn't make sense, and I'll take care of all your needs. I'm able to do that. In fact, Jesus is giving Peter a real-life example of write this passage down. A real-life example of Matthew 6, 25 through 33. Where God says, don't worry about what you have to wear. Don't worry about what you eat. Don't worry about your, your human needs. Your father sees that you need those things. And I will provide them. If you do what? If you focus on 
the kingdom of God and his righteousness, everything else will be taken care of. Everything. This is all over, all over the New Testament. Jesus having conversations with the disciples and Peter saying, we've, look at all the things that we've left. And Jesus said, I'll provide a hundredfold in this life and the next. Don't worry about it. Following Jesus sometimes looks like you're making a sacrifice, but all you're doing is opening yourself up for God to provide for you as you provide for others. All you're doing is opening yourself up to receive God's provision when you take these scary steps of faith that don't seem to make sense, like going out deeper and putting the net in after you've fished all night. What have you been holding back from God? Really, what have you been holding back from God? Because you don't actually believe that he can provide for you in all the ways that you need. Again, this doesn't always look like finances. There's a whole litany of ways that God can provide for us. What are you holding back? What do you refuse to surrender? What do you refuse? What part of your life do you refuse to say, this part's yours? Because you don't actually believe him. Because you don't actually trust him. Because you're kind of just going through the motions of Christianity, but without experiencing its power. You want to experience his power? Surrender all of it. And it doesn't matter what stage of life you're in. You could be 10 years old. You could be 90 years old. God is always, always about the business of inviting you to surrender as a way of increasing, demonstrating your increased trust and faith in him so that he can take care of you. He's always inviting us to do what he says to experience more of his goodness. John 6, 5 through 14 is another example of blessing and multiplication. This time, Jesus was teaching his disciples to depend on him for the provision of other people that they were caring for. In following Jesus, if you were a disciple, when Jesus was here and you were one of the 12, his purpose for you, everything he did was to train you to depend on him more. Everything he did if you follow them through the Gospels, was to show them, you, yeah, you can't do this without me. You can't do life without me. You can't do ministry without me. You need to have faith in me. Quit having, he was always training them, quit having faith in your capacity. Quit having faith in your human reasoning apart from prayerful dependence because it won't work. I was on the phone with a Southsider yesterday and talked with him about this as it relates to his life. I said, God is always training us to depend on him more. And it sounds, it sounds like this is an opportunity for you to depend on him, to take a step of faith and see how he takes care of you. Let's read it together. It's in your notes, John 6, 5 through 14. It's the last one. Lifting up his eyes, that's Jesus, lifting up his eyes then and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, where are we to buy bread so these people may eat? Well, he said this to test him. For he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered him. Yeah, when Jesus asks us a question, it's not for our benefit. Or it's not for his benefit. It's not like he doesn't know. It's, it's for our benefit. Philip answered him, uh, 200 denarii, I don't know how to say that. 200 denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get a little. One of his disciples, Andrew Simon Peter's brother, said to him, uh, there's a boy here 
who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? Jesus said, have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place. Sounds like Psalm 23, doesn't it? He makes me lie down in green pastures. Makes them sit down in a green field. It's a a symbol of abundance and provision. So the men sat down, about 5,000 in number. That means there was probably 10 to 20,000 people total. Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, sounds like he said a blessing, he distributed them to those who were seated. So also the fish, as much as they wanted, as much as they wanted, sounds like abundance, Sounds like a God who would fill a net with fish almost to the point of breaking the net as much as they, don't skimp on it. You ever sit around a table and it's like, oh, you could just have a time, just this, we can each have like one dinner roll. It's like, why would you even make, why would you even tease me? I want as much as I want. You can each have one cookie. Jesus wasn't like, he's like, have as much as you want. There's gonna be plenty, trust me. And when they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, now gather up the leftover fragments that may be lost so they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten a full basket for every disciple to carry and take with them that's a lot of provision when the people saw the sign that he had done they said this is indeed the prophet who is who is to come into the world when we take a step of obedience God provides in multiple ways Time, energy, resources, motivation, momentum, ideas, a fresh sense of his presence and help in life, joy. When we take a step of faith, he multiplies. And when Peter surrendered to God's invitation, even when it didn't make sense, God provided If you do what I say, I'll provide all you need. That's the lesson. Now, what does this have to do, by way of closing, with me talking about personal ministry and with the idea that God is inviting all of us into a life of personal ministry? Let's review the definition again. Personal ministry involves forming a loving relationship with another individual with the aim of mutual growth and Christian understanding, obedience, and serving of others. Sounds like another thing to do. Sounds like that might take time. How many of you have more time on your hands than you know what to do with? What do you suppose the pushback against this is going to be? I'll just tell you ahead of time. What's the pushback going to be? Don't have time. Not a good time in my life. Not really into that type of thing. I'm not really equipped for that type of thing. What Jesus is demonstrating is as we step out into obedience, he'll give us everything we need. It's the first button principle. The first button principle is if you button the correct button on the bottom button, the rest of the buttons will align. If you do that part right, everything else will align. It's like taking Sabbath. I don't take Sabbath. Like if someone tells me they don't take Sabbath, it's because, well, you're trusting yourself more than God then. If you don't take Sabbath, it means you don't actually believe God, that you can do that and the world won't stop spinning. It means that you... Don't think that your life can manage you taking a day off. 
It's a lack of trust in God. But Sabbath is a first button principle. If you take Sabbath one day where you don't do anything you don't want to do, you do no work, you let the ground lie fallow, if you do that, life will, God will fill in life around that so that you're actually able to accomplish significantly more than you ever would if you didn't take Sabbath. You don't get as much done if you don't Sabbath, I promise you, because you're doing it in your own strength. You're doing it in your own understanding. If you take Sabbath, God gets behind you, and you get more done than you could imagine. It's a first-button principle. It's called living by faith, and anything that we do by faith pleases God. Anything that we don't do by faith doesn't please him. So it, it always comes back, do I trust me or do I trust God? And my challenge for us this week is take these notes, read through these passages, reflect, pray, meditate on this, and ask God to deal with any pushback you might feel as we begin to talk about a life of significance, meaning, and fulfillment through personal ministry, which is at the very heart of God and the very thing he asked us to do in the Great Commission. Uh, we're going we're gonna to have communion now. Pastor Al is going to lead us into communion. But let me, let me, let me pray for us first as, as Al comes up. Father, we, this, is, this is... Anytime we take a step of faith, anytime we surrender something to you, even if it's time, it hurts it creates a tension in our heart. We worry about the things that we won't be able to get to. But on the other side of that step of, of obedience are two boats filled with provision so much that they're sinking. Our 12 basketfuls left over of food. Our increased capacity to manage ourselves in the, ourselves in the constraints of time. We don't have time, but when we live for you and we step into something concretely that you want us to do, you expand time. It goes by slower and we work faster. Teach us to trust in you. Teach us to believe you. Teach us to live a life that would be, that'd be impossible if it wasn't for your spirit sustaining it. In Jesus' name, amen.